while you're finding John chapter 5, yeah, 890, if you, gotta, if you want to borrow one of our pew Bibles there, not pews, chair Bibles, uh, grab one of those, that's where you'll find that. If you don't have a Bible, take that with you. If you know somebody that doesn't have a Bible, take that with you and give it to them. Um, but turn there and then just hang out for a minute. I want to say happy Father's Day and, um, you know, Mother's Day, it, we're, we're a little more aware of our emotions on Mother's Day because it involves uh, women and dudes are just like, yeah, it's, it's fine, thanks. Uh, but it's no less complex when we come to Father's Day and the mixture of emotions that come about because uh, there's no less complexity to the relationships that we've had with our fathers, um, the desire to be fathers that may or may not be fulfilled yet, um, or the struggles that we have as fathers uh, with worrying about our kids and worrying about whether we uh, are doing enough, loving enough, showing up, and all of those things. And so we want to enter in to uh, the, the statement of, and, the, and the encouragement to have a happy Father's Day, but we also want to make space for you to uh, bring the complexities of your heart to the Lord and know that uh, there is space for those here. Uh, there is space for nuance and, and, and both and in the Bible. There are, there are people who are incredibly grateful for what God has done and yet lamenting that things are not the way they should be. And those things don't have to be in opposition when it comes to our faith and following Jesus. And so you may have similar conflicting emotions today. Grateful and yet lamenting, grateful and yet grieving, um, hopeful and yet tired. And, and whatever those are, it's okay. Um, you can enter into that. You can enter uh, into the presence of Jesus with all of that, and he understands, and he sees, and he cares, and he sympathizes. And so for those of you that are brokenhearted uh, because you're very acutely aware of the loss of your father, maybe you had him. For years, and you've recently lost him. Some of you are, are grieving the fact that you never had your father. Uh, others of you are, like I said, in the midst of trying to father, right? And so wherever you are, I want to pray for us. And I just want to ask the Spirit to come and, and um, remind us of our Heavenly Father, the good Father, the, the ultimate um, example, uh, picture of love. And so let's... You, you, you come with all that you got, and if it's joy and that's it, praise God. If it's complexities and it's pain, you come, okay? Let's, let's pray. Um, happy, happy Father's Day, God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that your word, that you, in your word, described yourself as a father to the fatherless. That you have declared that you will put lonely into families because you're a good father. Um, we've all experienced that if we are here and we're born again Christians, that you have taken our lonely, broken lives and you have placed us into your family. And so we say thank you. And as we now seek to be your family to one another, uh, to our, our actual household families, to the church, um, we ask for your grace as it is 
we are acutely aware of the failures of fathers, um, our own failures as fathers, our fears as fathers, our wounds that came to us at the hands of our father or the absence of our fathers. And so we could sit here and, and name all of that. We could sit here and grieve all of that. And as we do, as we sit in that, acknowledge and just bring all that to you honestly, I pray that you would come and that you would be near to those that are brokenhearted as you said you would in your Psalms. And that you would remind those that are waiting for the day they get to be a father of the promise of your faithfulness. And I pray for those, of us, those that don't have fathers and long for that kind of presence. I pray that you would, by your spirit, cultivate us as your people to be a church that fills gaps where the ideal was lacking, where our biological fathers were not there. May you send brothers, older brothers, father figures into the lives of younger men, whether they are uh, younger men in their 50s, would you send them men in their 60s and 70s, whether they are younger men in their teens, would you send them men of all ages? I pray that you would do that kind of work in restoring the beauty of what you have for us in fatherhood. So there's so much more, Lord, but I pray you'd be with each and every one of us, each and every one's conflicting space, and uh, may you help them to have joy and hope on this Father's Day. And where it is good and right for them, may they not feel any shame about just being really, really grateful. And where there is lacking, where the ideal is not there, where there is pain, may they be able to sit with you and be really, really hopeful. So all this we ask in your name, Lord. Amen. Happy Father's Day. All right, let's look at John chapter 5. I love this gospel. Uh, I've, I've loved preaching it so far. I hope that you have been blessed by it. And um, as I told you early on, there is a diversity of stories as we get into it now uh, of Jesus encountering different people. And each one is giving us a glimpse, uh, not even a glimpse, a, 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 just a robust look at the glory of Jesus as he is displaying the glory of God as he is incarnate on earth. And so John chapter 5 uh, is, is a bit of a shift in the, the, the narrative of the gospel overall. Um, so we've kind of got the introductory, you know, Jesus has launched his ministry, and it's going to shift now. In this passage, you will see it shift from people responding with some skepticism, uh, some hard questions, maybe some grumblings, and it will shift by the end of this to all out, outright opposition and persecution of Jesus. And so this will begin to build the narrative. It won't be long until we find ourselves in John's gospel in the Passion Week. A good portion of the gospel of John takes place in the Passion Week. And so we will move pretty rapidly from sort of this launch of Jesus' ministry uh, in chapters um, 1 through 4 and then 5 through 11. Like they're going to go pretty quick as far as like, um, the, the in-between, and then we'll, we'll find ourselves in the last week of Jesus' ministry pretty uh, rapidly. And so here we're going to see that shift from skepticism, hesitation, grumbling to outright opposition. So join me in reading John chapter 5. We'll start right there in verse 1. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, and in Aramaic it's called Bethesda or Bethsaida which has five roofed colonnades. 
In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed, and he walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. So, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, uh, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and so I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so Jesus is shifting. And so after this, there, there's a, we don't know, there's an indefinite amount of time between the, the last exchange there uh, where Jesus is in Galilee healing the official son uh, until here. And John makes it clear uh, in the end of the book that if he were to write everything that Jesus did, it would fill up all the pages in the world. Like it's too much. And so you got to know it's not exact, you know, uh, you know, chronicling of everything that Jesus did. So there's a period of time that has shifted here. Uh, it's not immediately thereafter. But after this, there's a feast of the Jews, and Jesus is back in Jerusalem. So he's gone from Jerusalem through Sychar, uh, you know, and fa- back to Galilee. He stopped in the woman at the well. We had that experience. We had the son, and now Jesus is back in Jerusalem for another feast. It's an unnamed feast, but we see that, that John is going to tie. Jesus would do this as well, but John ties his gospel to so many of these rhythms from the Old Testament, these feasts that God had put together for his people to, to do, to remember who he was, what he had done, they would gather around these feasts to celebrate that. And so, so much of what Jesus is going to do is going to be tied to that because Jesus is, is displaying that those feasts were not an end and of themselves, right? They were a means. They were pointing to something. They were reminding them what God had done and pointing to what he promised to do, which was to send a Savior. And so Jesus enters in. Uh, into these spaces uh, around these feasts, and he does these incredible things that lift the eyes of the Jews to the, to the reality, invites them to see the reality that God is doing what he has promised to do. God is doing the new and the better. So that's the context. Uh, now there is in Jerusalem this, this, uh, this colonnade, this um, rows of columns with this pool around it, uh, around this particular gate, uh, and it's, it's called Bethsaida. There's a few different translations. You'll see footnotes there. Um, you can pick whichever one you're comfortable with. There's just a, several different ways to translate that into English. Um, and, but here's the deal. There's this rows of columns, these, these you know, covered areas, and there's this pool sitting there. And this pool has, this, the area surrounding this pool has become a place where um, people of all sorts of illness, all sorts of um, struggles, right? It says a multitude of invalids are laying there. So blind people, 
uh, lame people, people who are unable to use their limbs and walk, and the paralyzed, right? Um, they're all, there's, there's a multitude. So I want you to picture that with me. I want you to picture this is the scene where, where people who cannot help themselves, people who society really has no use for because they have nothing to offer society. And it was even worse in this day and age. We have, this is people that are, you know, on the side of the road that are maybe in a wheelchair with a sign or, or whatever. We have the concentrations of this. You go to urban areas, there's a lot of conversation about homelessness. There's a lot of conversation about, you know, these people congregating in tent communities, all of these things. This is that sort of thing. All of these people who have nothing to offer society and therefore society seems to have no care for them have gathered um, and are, are sitting around this pool. Right. Now, I don't know, did anybody catch that there's a verse missing? No? Okay. Well, you, there's a verse missing. At least the one, the way that I read it in the ESV skips verse 4. It's not there. Um, now, it's likely in your footnotes, or if you have a different version, King James or otherwise, it might, it might be in there. There's a reason for that. It is not found in the earliest of manuscripts. It's found in some of the later manuscripts, but in the earliest and the most reliable manuscripts of the New Testament, verse 4 is not found. The, the common belief is that it was added later as an explanation for verse 7. So verse 7 sort of leaves us begging for an explanation whenever the, the man gives the, the response to Jesus about, you know, getting well. He's like, well, you know, when the water stirred up, uh, somebody else always beats me there. I, there's no one to put me in the pool, so when the water stirred, no one, you know, I can't get in there. And so that, if you just have that information, it's sort of confusing as to, like, what, what is going on with this pool? Why are people gathered there? Why are they trying to get in the water? And so verse 4 would read uh, in your footnotes, or if you have a, uh, a passage that includes it, would say, uh, <clears throat> Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water, and whoever stepped in first at the stirring, after the stirring of the water was healed from whatever disease he had. And so uh, I think that's, that's the common, again, why it was left out, not super important. Uh, so it's not going to be included in the most um, literal translations, but um, I think that's probably why it doesn't change much. And just know that, man, as, as you get started, if, if that piques your interest, you're somebody that wants to know about like early manuscripts and uh, the historicity and the reliability of scripture, man, study away because you will come away from that study with an enriched faith because our, like, this is a side note, but our, our, our scriptures, the, the, the transcripts, the earliest originals of, um, of the New Testament are stand over and above any other piece of literature with an embarrassment of riches that say to us, our God has preserved his word on purpose for his people, and it's amazing. So go ahead and study that and just know that. But know that any discrepancy, any part that's like, we're not sure if it's there or if it's not, uh, bear, has no bearing on any core doctrine about Jesus. It, they will be very much secondary, tertiary things about details here. And so this is, you know, you could study away, you can dive deep if you want, but know that it doesn't have a significant bearing on the passage, but, but that is the context. Um, there is seemingly, there is some superstition around this pool that something, whether it's angels, which is what verse 4 would say if, if it's, you know, legit, something uh, they people believe stirs the water at different points, at random, it seems, and when that happens, whoever's first in the pool gets a healing. Now, we have no reason to believe that that actually happens. 
There's, there's nothing in the scripture that, that validates that that was a real thing that was happening. Um, we, we have every reason to just kind of believe that that was some form of superstition. Um, it's possible, but we don't have a word from God to, to sort of believe that that is. So, so really, these people should be uh, pitied in our eyes. They are, they are gathering around a, a, a superstitious hope that if they can get the, the formula right, when they're stirred, first in, they will get a healing. This is the context that's going on. So I, I'm pretty sure, as I was reading this this week, uh, I think my first ever sermon when I was 15 was from this passage. Um, and, I, and I can't remember um, why, frankly, because I'm not sure what points I made, why I chose it. I think I'd read an article in like a Sunday school book or something that was like talking about it, and I loved it, and that was my, that's why I picked it. I, here's what I do know. It was a smashing hit. It's a great sermon. Mostly because it was a whopping 12 minutes long. And I've been making up for that ever since. I really don't know what I, but, but I do remember one thing. Uh, I remember getting pulled aside. I think, I don't know if it was my mom or my pastor, but one of them, like, uh, as a 15-year-old kid, I said the word butthole in the sermon. And so I was talking about this guy was like, yeah, Jesus, I want to be healed. But every time the water's stirred, some other butthole gets in there first. And I didn't even, like, and this is still a problem for me. It didn't even click, right? I didn't even click that I just said that until I got out, like, my mom was like, you, you did really good, sweetie. Maybe don't say butthole anymore. Um, when you're preaching, but you did really good, you know? And so, I, again, this was, I don't know, but I did, I picked this verse, and, and it is, it's an incredible story, so let's, let's keep going. That's the context, and so here is, I want you to have that in mind, and I want you to see Jesus now walking up with intentionality, knowing people. Verse 5 said, there was a man there who was invalid for 38 years. Goodness. Like, don't just read and move past this. I want you to sit with that. And I want you to think of someone who's been unable to use their body in its correct form for 38 years. When, verse 6, when Jesus saw him, don't, don't miss that. You're going to see this theme in the Gospels where Jesus sees people. You're like, of course, he's not blind. No, no, no. He sees them in a way that, that changes his action, changes what he's going to do. He, he sees them. He allows them to actually matter, and he's drawn to them. No, like, this is a group of people that nobody sees anymore. Nobody wants to be around these people. The smell's probably not great at the pool of Bethsaida. The feeling is probably not great. There's a lot of begging, a lot of moaning and groaning perhaps. This is not a place where anybody, unless you had a relative there that you, still, that you cared about, you're not gonna go here. But Jesus goes there. He sees this man and he, and he, and he goes to him. He sees him lying there, verse six, and he knew that he'd been there a really long time. Now, Jesus has been to Jerusalem. This is at least his second trip since we've been reading. Like he's probably been there at least once a year, every year. So maybe he's seen him. Maybe this is his divine foreknowledge, or you know, just his knowledge of this man. Regardless, he knows that this guy's been here a long time, and he walks up to him and he asks him a peculiar question, doesn't he? He says, "Do you do you want to be healed?" Now, can you imagine? 
and be like, if I'm that guy, I'm be like, yeah, who are you talking to? Of course I want to be healed. This is why I'm here, right? But Jesus asked this question. Do you want to be healed? Now, seems like a silly question. Because why, like, first of all, who doesn't want to be healed? If you have something wrong with your body, like, it's hard to imagine not wanting that to be fixed. And if you're there at a place where people hope to be healed and there's a super, like, of course, he wants to be healed. So Jesus is asking this question. You need to not just skip over this. Stop. When you're reading passages like this, stop and go, okay, Jesus, why'd you ask that? What, like, let the Bible, like, take you deeper and go, why did you ask that? Jesus, what, what are you wanting me to see in this question? And here's what I would submit to you. This is not unlike Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. Jesus is going to make a habit out of using physical needs, physical things that we're all aware of to point to something deeper, to draw us to consider something beyond our obvious issue. So for the woman at the well, Jesus brings up thirst. He brings up the coming to the well to quench this thirst, and it has to happen on repeat and he uses that to point deeper into her story and, and ask her, in essence, do you think that going from one man to another is going to lead to any true quenching of your soul's thirst? You see, for the woman at the well, she was longing for something, longing for a wholeness, longing for a peace, longing for satisfaction, and she was taking that longing to love, to the men, and it was letting her down and creating a, a deeper and deeper cavernous hole inside of her. And Jesus uses this to go there with her. So here Jesus says, do you, do you want to be healed? And I think there's a, there's a gentle prodding from Jesus. He's looking at a man who's been lame for 38 years, laying by a pool because there's superstition, believe that when the waters are stirred, the first one in can be healed. The expository commentary um, explains it like this saying it's a lot like a, uh, a kid um, with, a, with a, a mud puddle and a wash rag just trying to clean his little matchbox toy, his matchbox car. And as an adult, you walk up and you just see him scrubbing away, right? And imagine you're saying like, hey, hey buddy, like, are you wanting to clean your car? Because there's better ways to clean your car, right? Like, let me get you some clean water. Like, so it's sort of that... There, there's that prodding of saying, hey, like, is that what you're trying to do? Because there's, there's no hope of it working. That is where, where Jesus is, is entering in here. Sort of saying, like, hey, are, are you here because you want to be healed? This, this, is a, this is a superstition. There's nothing magical about this, this pool. There's no angel that's going to stir it. Like, Jesus would know, Right? If an angel comes to stir the water, it would have been because Jesus had told an angel to go stir the water, right? And Jesus says, like, are, are, you, are you trying to be healed? Much the same way we say, are you trying to clean your car? There's an implication that there's a better way to accomplish this. Like, in fact, this is, this is futile. This is not going to be helpful. I wonder what it is that Jesus is, is prodding in you. If he were to walk up on your life, see the way you're living, see the things that you're turning to in hopes of fulfillment, what, what would he prod at with you? What is it that you're looking to for fulfillment, for healing, for deep joy, 
that has no real chance of ever giving you any of those things? Is it your job? Is it your kids? Is it your money? Is it, is it your spouse? Is it the hope of the spouse? Is it the hope of a change of a spouse? Like, what is it if Jesus if would walk up on you in your angst, in your inner thoughts, in your daydreaming, or in your laboring, in what you're giving yourself to in your life, what would Jesus go, hey, are you, are you trying to find joy? Are you trying to be made whole? Because there's a better way to do that. It's not going to happen there. See, this is, Jesus asks questions. He's not, he's not foolish. He, he knows the answer, he, but, but he's asking it in such a way where he's prompting this, okay, let, let, let's go a little bit deeper. And the man's answer, he answers much like the other people in the gospel that Jesus has already encountered that sort of misunderstand what Jesus is offering, right? When you see it with Nicodemus, Jesus is like, hey, man, you got to be born again. Nicodemus is like, cool, but my mom's probably not going to be cool with that. Like, I can't, I don't think we can, I don't know. I don't think I can arrange that, right? So there's sort of this miss. You see the woman at the well is like, uh, you're asking me for water? I, you don't even have a, you don't have a cup, man? You don't have anything to draw with, right? So there's this, Jesus does this often. He presents with this physical thing. He, he brings up a deeper need, and it's very often that people don't get it initially. So the man replies, and he says, uh, verse 7, uh, sick man answered him, sir, I I've got no one to put me in the water, right? So you got to imagine this guy can't move very well on his own. It would take him a while. Now, if this is me, I'm, I'm probably going to want to coach him. Like, hey, buddy, get on the edge of the pool, okay, and just watch the water real close, and you just be ready to flop in. <laughs> like, that's how my brain works. It's like, man, you just got a bad strategy, man. Like, you need to be ready to fall into that thing. He's like, I don't have anybody to help me get in. And when, when the water stirs... I, I miss it. Now, there's blind people there. They, they, can get, they can move quickly. How did they know the water? Were they listening? Somebody helping them? I don't know. And that may be part of it because a blind person, they can get in there quick. They can, move, they can jump, right? They can cannonball into that thing. But somebody had to tell them, go, 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 right? The water's stirred. You're in. Go, go, go. Like push. I don't know. But this guy's got nobody. So it's telling us even more about him. He's there alone. He has no one to help him. Maybe some people come and they're just staying for a week or two waiting for the water to stir. And they've got a plan to get their person in, right? But this guy has no one to help him. And so he says, while I'm trying to get in, another steps down before me. So there's this competitive, this pushing and shoving, this. And you think of what's at stake here. You think of what's going on here. This is not hard to imagine. If, if healing is going to happen, and I don't know. I don't know if, they, if it's just, you know, if they'd seen people actually be healed there, or if they, you know, just believed it. And, but nonetheless, this is what they thought. And so this is his response is, I can't get there. I can never be first. I got no one to help me. Of course, I want to be made well. Jesus says to him, get up. Get up. Now, l- listen. He's not got a boo-boo. 38 years. Imagine with me what a body looks like after 38 years of invalidity. Muscles have atrophied, shriveled. Jesus says, get up, grab your bed, and walk. 
Like we can't, like you got to stop reading the Bible so like disconnected. You got to get in there and be like, what? Jesus, like you need to feel this because we're just too used to it. We're, we're too used to what Jesus is, is, has done and what he, what he does. Like he, he, he says, take up your bed and walk. This is, this is crazy. And what's even crazier is the next verse says, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Listen, y'all. We need to be in awe of who our Jesus is. Because he doesn't say, okay, I'll tell you what, buddy, I've healed your disease. So it's no longer going to be attacking your body. Um, so go ahead and get into physical therapy. Go ahead and start trying. And within a few months, you could probably get a lot of your mobility back. Which would be amazing. Right? Like if you just stop the disease and he tells the guy, okay, you can start like trying to walk. That would be amazing. We'd all take that, wouldn't we? But no, in a moment, those atrophied muscles, those tendons, those ligaments, those things that had not fired up, the nerve endings, all of that, the blood flow is restored. And, it's, and in a moment, at Jesus' word, that guy is able to get up and walk. This is crazy. I want you to, like, don't miss what John is showing you. Last week, just at the words from Jesus, he's 15 miles away from the official son. And at his very word, he's made well. The fever's gone. Here, Jesus simply speaks. With only his voice, this man's body is made whole. The work that the disease had done for 38 years is undone in a moment. It turns out he didn't need to be in the pool first. He didn't need an angel to stir the waters. He simply needed the one who, who was first in all creation. He needed that one, the one who commands the angels. He needed that one to simply speak. And just like he simply spoke the world into existence, this man's body is made whole. Remember Remember, church, John went to great lengths in chapter 1 to, to give us a heads up to help us know that this is who he's introducing us to. This is no mere miracle worker. This is no sleight of hand truth, like just good teacher. John is, it, like, went to great lengths to make sure that we knew, hey, the one who spoke and the universe were flung into existence, that's who's taking up residence here on earth. That's who's about to encounter people in these coming chapters and stories. So, this is the creator of the world. He is supreme. There's nobody else like him. That's who's here dealing, encountering with these people, right? Here's the deal. We don't deserve Jesus. We don't deserve him to come into our midst and do anything other than really destroy us. We aren't, we aren't owed anything by him. And in fact, could destroy us with a word. In fact, he could and he should destroy us with his word. Like that's actually what we deserve. But instead, what does he give us? John says he's going to come with the fullness of God on display. What no one's ever seen, he's going to make it known. He's coming full of grace and truth. And to a people who are undeserving, unwelcoming, he gives grace upon Grace. This is what we're told was coming in John chapter 1, and now we're seeing it play out. This is what the people of God were told was coming all the way back in the prophets. Isaiah chapter 35 says this, They shall see the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then the lame man 
will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall leap for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. If they were actually Bible people, they would not have been running to the throne or running to Roman rule to see, what are you going to do? Are you the Messiah? Are you going to take them on? Are you, are you, is that what you're here for? No, they'd have, they would have gone right to the pool at Bethsaida and said, hey, hey, remember, guys, Isaiah says that like all of these people are going to be healed. Jesus, are, are you going? Are you going there? Are you going to the pool? Are you going to the places where sin has ravaged people the most clearly? Is that where you're going? And they don't get it, but that's exactly where Jesus goes. And he's transforming his world. He's restoring his created order. Not because he has to. Not because he made a mistake. But just purely out of his kindness. He uses his immense power to heal and to make whole. So it's with this idea of wholeness, like that, you know, to be uh, healed could be translated to be made whole. Uh, the the gentleman is going to use that same language, the man who, who made me whole. Like the, the, so it's with this idea of, of restoration, of wholeness, that we now get back to the story and see that that idea is what Jesus was communicating, but um, the whole point is missed because the next sentence after the man takes up his bed and walks um, in the middle of verse 9, says, Now that day was the Sabbath. Now, there's a couple things going on there. The Sabbath comes as a result of God's completion, his wholeness. We see the Sabbath is first introduced to us early on in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, whenever God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day, his creation was whole. It was complete. It was done. And he rested. Understand, this is what God longs for, for us. This is what God has gifted us with, was a wholeness, a, a creation that was finished, that was good. And at the completion of that, he rests. Jesus here has brought wholeness to this man. And it is on the day of rest, right? But this is what turns the conflict. This is what freaks out the religious leaders is because it was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, hey, uh, it's, you can't, I want you to picture this. You, if Jesus, like people knew about this guy. He's been there for 38 years. Well, he's been ill for 38 years. He's been there for a long time. We don't know how long. I want you to imagine you now see that guy walking down the road with his bed in his arm. What's your response? I mean, honestly. Like, let me tell you, you'd freak out. You're like, oh my goodness, what happened? How are you well? Right, like, it, you, should, you should have a response of like, what did I miss? You, th like, are you, are you that guy? The hardness of heart that exists that you're going to see on display here has to be noted because they look right past the fact that this guy who's been invalid for 38 years is now walking, holding his bed, and they look right past it and call him out saying, whoa, 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 man, it's the Sabbath. You can't take your bed up. Now, can you imagine that? You see, what the people have done is they've taken a good gift from God in the Sabbath and they've turned it into this idolatrous 
um, legalistic way of setting themselves apart and, 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 and gaining for themselves authority. Now, it started with good intentions. It's like, okay, God told us not to work on the Sabbath. That's the command. Here's what God says. Hey, take a day off every week. Does that sound like bad news? You just got to be honest here. God's saying, hey, you don't have to work every day. In fact, I'm like imagine your boss is like, no, no, go home. Like, I got a lot to do. I know, go home. God's saying, take a day off every week. That's, that's the basics of the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. What does that mean? Take a day every week where you stop pretending that the world depends on you, where you stop pretending that if you don't do something, everything's going to crumble, where you stop pretending that if it's going to be, it's up to me, where you stop pretending that if, if you let off the gas, the whole thing's going to come apart, if you don't do, like, you stop pretending all of that, and it's a physical, like, acknowledgement that's saying, God, I believe that you've got this, and I'm going to take a day off. It's, it's much like when we worship through giving. It's, it's not because God needs our money. It's because he wants us to rest in him and not trust in our finances. So does God need a day where everybody's attention is focused on him? No. He doesn't need anything from us. But he loves us. I always say when God gives us commands, he's never trying to steal from us. He's never trying to take from us. He's always, always, always trying to lead us to life. And that was the idea behind the Sabbath. It's a good gift. Take a day off. Don't be productive. Don't try to earn anything in this moment. Don't try to get ahead. Stop for a moment. Stop. And acknowledge that I'm in control and you're not. And yeah, go worship. Yeah, go to the temple. Absolutely. Right? This is what it was. But religious leaders were like, okay, he said not to work. Like, now, what if, like, my animal needs water? Does that work? Right? So they start asking all these questions. Well, what if I, what if somebody's sick? Can I give them medicine? And the answer, they, they get to the answer, they say no. Right? They get to this point where they've written all of these subsequent laws saying, well, you can't do this. You can't walk any further than this. How far is the temple for the average person? Okay, you can walk that far, but no further. You can't do this. You can't do that. They put all these extra rules on there. Again, probably out of a good heart initially saying, okay, here's the line. Ah, no, we don't want anybody to get over that line, so we better go ahead. You know what? Just don't even get close to it. And then, you know, go ahead. Let's, let's just... Let's not even get close to that line. So they put another one, and before you know it, they, they can't turn on a lamp. They can't do anything. As a pastor told, I was listening to a pastor teach on this, and he told a story about walking in his neighborhood at like 1230 at night. He was walking his neighbor's dog, and this guy runs out of this uh, house that's an Airbnb, and he's like, hey, man, I need your help. Are you Jewish? And the guy's like, no. He's like, okay, great. I need to put groceries in the fridge. He's like, and he realized, oh, you open the door of the fridge, what comes on? A light. In Orthodox Jewish law, you can't turn on a light, which for them would have been like lighting a lamp, you know, whatever. But not biblical, extra biblical, but this is what they've done. And so to open the fridge, fridge door, turn on a light, they'd be breaking the Sabbath. So he needs to go find somebody on the street to do that for him. Now, it's easy to chuckle a little bit at that, about the absurdity. But this is what happens whenever we start to try to gain righteousness from the law. 
when we start to earn our righteousness from the rules that God has given us, we start to do absurd things. And that's exactly what has happened to these religious leaders, to the people that look at a man who's got up off his bed and carrying his bed and is walking through town, and they say, whoa, 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 man, you can't carry your bed. That's what's going on. Listen to how the guy responds. He's like, um, the guy who healed me told me to. He said it. Take up your bed and walk. Right? I want you to imagine. He's like, I, I mean, sure, I've heard that. But like, just saying, he, I don't know who you are. You never helped me at all. I'm well. He did it. He told me to take up my bed. So I got my bed and I'm walking. Verse 12, they ask him, well, who, is, who, who is that? Who said that to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who, who healed didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus had withdrawn, so he can't point to him. Jesus is like getting away from the crowd. So afterward, Jesus finds him where? Where? You can, you can say it. In the temple. Where's this guy going? He's going to church. He hasn't been able to go. You're like, nobody, no, like people with, il with illnesses, sickness, they had to stay outside the camps. People with certain, you know, uh, disease couldn't come into the temple. This guy has not been able to worship for 38 years at least. We don't know how old he is. We don't know when he got sick. Maybe he's 38. Maybe he's 58. And I, we don't know. But for 38 years, he has not been able to worship. All Jesus says is, hey, go ahead, get up, bro. Take up your bed and walk. Jesus withdraws. This guy's like, I'm going to church. I'm going to church. First time in 38 years, like he's on his way. And on his way to church, somebody stops him. Some church person stops him and goes, hey, dude, you can't carry your bed. The guy's like, I, I got to go to church. I've been made well. And the guy's like, you can't go to, you can't go to church. You're a sinner. Like, religious people start freaking out. Start freaking out. Now, listen, this like, I can't imagine it. First of all, this guy has the right posture because he goes, I don't know what you're saying, but the guy who made me well told me to, and that's what I'm going to do. I don't have time to unpack this a ton, but you just need to have that posture with Jesus because Jesus has told us to do some things that our world's going to tell us we can't do. Okay? You could fill in those blanks, but the world's going to tell us you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. And we've got to be willing to say, ah, Jesus says that I, I should, and he made me whole, not you. Do what you got to do. I'm going to do what Jesus said. Right? Read Acts chapter 4. Peter and John do the same thing. Okay? So this is, this is what's going on. Right? And then this guy is called out by these religious people. They're more concerned about the regulation than they are the restoration. Can you imagine missing the miracle or looking right past it to just call out this violation? Can you imagine not being blown away, not being staggered by this? This is what a hard heart looks like. When you build your righteousness on the adherence to law, then, you, then and so much so that your identity rests in it, right? When you are so worried about this is how church is supposed to work, and this is how this person is supposed to do this, and this is how the, that ministry is supposed to operate, and this and this and this and this, then you'll come in here with your nose so worried about whether this person's doing that or whether they're doing that back there or whether you know, Chad is doing this or Jordan's wearing that, and you'll miss what God is doing. I've seen it happen. 
The closest thing I know to this is a story I know I've told you before. I was a youth pastor years and years ago. Uh, our church was in the middle of town, close to the high school, and so before youth group nights, I'd just go out and walk around in the neighborhood and try to hang out with kids, just meet them and share the gospel with them. And one night, I ran into these three guys. They literally had weed. They were going to smoke weed. And that was, and I just like, hey, what, what are y'all doing? I just got to know him, talked to him a little bit, told him who I was, told him about Jesus. And I was like, hey, would y'all want to come to church? And they're just like, we're not really church people. I'm like, come on, it's good. Like, and come. And so they came on a Wednesday night and they started hanging out with our youth group and it was awesome. Well, Sunday, uh, they didn't come Sunday morning because they weren't awake. But Sunday night, they came back to church with me. And I was pumped. Because these were three kids that most of the society had labeled as thugs. Trouble. And there they were at church. And I was excited to introduce them to other kids. I was excited that they were there. And I looked up as I'm talking to somebody else and I see one of the older men in our church who was frankly a church curmudgeon. He was just a grumpy old dude. I see him talking to one of the guys. And I don't know what he says. And before I can get there, he walks away. And that young man takes his hat off and his shoulders slump. And he kind of sits there ashamed. And I walked over to him and I said, what, what, what did he just say? He told me I needed to show some respect and take my hat off. It was in God's house. Listen, y'all. I wanted to lay hands in a non-Jesus way. I've never been so angry in church. I was like, he, he, he said that? Yeah. I said, I'm glad you're here, buddy. You want to wear your hat, wear your hat. And I went and talked to that guy. And I said, what, what are you doing? Well, they need to show some respect. They need to, these young kids, blah, blah, blah. I was like, hey, 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 hey. Do you even know who that is? Well, no, I've never seen him before. He comes in here with his hat. Okay. So you want them to know respect. Who do you think it would be that would teach him respect? Well, it should have been his dad. Well, I said, okay, okay, okay. Do you know his dad? You know where his dad is? Well, no. Yeah, he doesn't either. In fact, none of them did. Curtis, Clarence, and Cody. None of them had dads in their life. But they're in the house of the Father. And the first thing you're going to say to them is not, Hi, my name is Larry. I'm really glad you're here, young man. But instead, it's show some respect, take your hat off, young man. Mm. Like, when we are so religiously consumed about this and that, we will miss what God is doing. And that's what Jesus is going to say. Because they're going to get getting freaked out. Right? The story goes on, and Jesus is going to say, he's going to say to the man in verse 14, he sees him again in the temple. There he was. He's at church. He's like, hey, man, see, you're well. Now, hey, go and sin no more so nothing worse happens to you. And what Jesus is saying there is, hey, listen, I know you've been invalid, but listen, sin is the real problem. It's the real thing that separates us from God. You thought you just couldn't come to the temple because of your illness, but the reason we can't come into the presence of God is because we're sinful, and that's what I've really taken care of today, so... Keep pursuing Jesus. Don't let yourself slip back into unrepentant sin and something worse would happen to you. The man went away and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. He, this guy catches a lot of flack for that. Why did he narc Jesus out? All that? It, listen, we don't know. 
I don't think somebody who's healed by Jesus would want to cause Jesus harm. My guess is he feels an obligation to the authorities and he doesn't understand their intent to bring Jesus harm. So he tells them, hey, it was him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And here's what Jesus said to them. You're so worried about the Sabbath and these laws and that laws. He says, my father is working until now, and I am also working. Here's what he's saying. You get so fixed on the laws, on the rules, and what people could and cannot do, you're going to miss what God is doing. You've missed what God is doing. That old man at that church had missed the fact that God had just pulled three guys off the street, two of which I know. Their stories have been rewritten, and they've got families of their own, and they're faithful husbands who take their families to church. That's what God was doing. He was bringing young thugs out of a life of wreckage and into his house to restore them. And you missed it because you're worried about his hat? Shame on you. Goodness, come on. Can you imagine these guys missing the fact that a, a man 38 years without walking is now there in church? Man. Not only have they missed the joy of what God was doing in healing that man, because that healing should have set the whole city on fire with celebration. Not only have they missed that, but they've also missed the gift of what God is offering them in the Sabbath, the gift of rest. They've missed it. You're going to see this theme come up later in John 9 and in other places. You're going to see that this big idea of the Sabbath is going to be what turns a lot of this tension, but even more than that, as it says at the end, it's, it's breaking the Sabbath, but even more so is that he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So here's the irony and the tragedy. The Sabbath itself was a gift that's concerning the wholeness that God meant for his image bearers to enjoy at the completed creation. That's what the Sabbath is about. Enjoy what I've made you. It's good and it's whole. Jesus exposes this irony saying, listen, my father's working and I'm working. He asserts the fact that God continues to work, and the context implies that even though the Father rested on the seventh day of creation, he's not constrained to the seventh day of each week, the universe continues to be held together, right? Yes, he rested, but the universe continues to be held together by what God is doing. And Jesus adds to this saying, okay, my God hasn't quit working and doing what he has promised to do, and therefore neither have I. The Jews love the commandment more than they love the man who had been healed. And they clearly loved the commandment more than they loved God who gave the commandment. Yeah, the commandment was to keep the Sabbath holy. And they had added these laws. But Jesus says, what's the most important commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You need to run it through these filters. We've misunderstood what Jesus meant whenever he says, I've come to restore. So when we love Rules, rituals, services, more than we love God ourselves, or, or the, more than we love our neighbors, then we're going to miss what God is doing. So here's what I ask you a few questions as we close. Where have you misunderstood Jesus' restoration? Where have you sold him short, believing in something less than what he offers? 
Where have we looked for that restoration in something other than him? See, that guy just thought his body needed to be well. Jesus knew that his whole being needed to be made whole and well. And he was taking it to something so cheap and so superstitious in hopes that it could do something that it never could. We're not unlike that man. Remember, the question I asked earlier, what if Jesus comes upon you living your life? What's he going to poke and prod and just say, hey, really, are you trying to be happy with that? Where have we missed his offer of rest and being with him for shallow religious stuff? If you've come to church, you're just worried about, you know, if Jordan's going to do this or the band's going to sing this song, whatever. Who's running sound? What, what, like, how loud is it going to be? This and that. Like, who's stirring? Like, they got enough donuts. They have my type of donut. If that's the sort of stuff you've got on your radar, Satan will snatch your joy right away. And you'll miss what God is doing. You'll miss the rest. You'll miss the presence of him. So how do you view church? How do you view Sundays in general? Is it a burden? Is it a bunch of stuff you've got to do? Or is it an opportunity to be in the presence of God, to see what he's doing? I wonder what we've missed because we've been so worried about ourselves. We've been so worried about our duties that we haven't looked around. My favorite things to do is during communion is just to watch the people that come through. And, to, and, I, and I have the privilege of knowing most of your stories. And it encourages my faith to see what God is doing. Don't miss it by being focused on the wrong stuff. Let's pray. God, It's easy to look at the religious people and say, how could they? But in reality, that is us. We are the ones missing the point. We are the ones not longing for you and your work, but instead for our preferences, for our righteousness. So would your spirit come and overwhelm us? Make us whole. And help us to rejoice in being in your presence. And your presence allows us, reminds us to rest, a true Sabbath rest, trusting that you've got this. May that message and hope penetrate all of our hearts and cause us to respond accordingly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing.